Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It was the Larry Householder Show in the State House yesterday. Some of the most riveting testimony we've seen coming out of a State House hearing. I, I had to keep turning the sound down to get things done. And it was like the opposite of a DeWine briefing where I really didn't want to turn the sound down because it was so interesting to watch him getting grilled. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. And we're going to be talking about Larry Householder today with our chief political correspondent, Seth Richardson, and my colleague, Laura Johnston. Happy Wednesday. Happy, Happy Wednesday, Wednesday to you as well. Let's begin. Disgraced former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder testified Tuesday on his arguments against being ousted from the Ohio House involving his racketeering indictment in the $60 million bribery scheme to give more than a billion dollars to First Energy Corporation at the expense of Ohio ratepayers. Have to keep reminding people what the big bribery scheme was supposed to do. Give First Energy a billion dollars they didn't need by taking it out of all of our pockets. That's what Larry Householder passed. And that's why he's accused of bribery. So he finally spoke up yesterday and then got grilled, Seth Richardson, by his colleagues in both parties. Yeah, and it was fascinating to see the kind of stance that he was taking uh, during this whole thing because, you know, it was, uh, the Rules Committee, and it was Republicans and Democrats who were both there, and, uh, you know, some some bipartisan grilling, I might add, right? Actually, I think some of the more uh, challenging questions came from Republicans who were on the committee. But it was interesting to see the tack that he was taking where he was basically painting himself as a victim, that he was part of this, you know, uh, odds on conspiracy to oust him from uh, uh, government and that any attempt to remove him from office would be tantamount to uh, endorsing future removals from office to o- and overturning elections and the will of the people. Now, obviously, he's you know, leaving out quite a bit of context there because, you know, while he was elected last time, he was also unopposed. And it's very hard for an unopposed office holder to really lose election, especially with, you know, uh, if you're relying on write-in candidates. Um, But yeah, this whole like kind of victimization angle that he took was, um, I don't know that it was surprising, but it was certainly um, jarring in a way, right? Um, because, you know, he kept saying, I haven't been convicted or anything like that. And the, the thing is, though, that expulsion from the House or from the legislature in general does not rely on a criminal conviction, right? It's more about, you know, public standing and if you've eroded trust in the institution and whatnot. And I think um, Democrat Kristen Boggs actually, uh, you know, asked him a pretty good question near the end where – she was like, well, you know, all, all we've heard this t- whole time is, uh, you know, th- th- these feelings of victimization. But, you know, do you, do you have any sense of accountability toward, you know, the state of Ohio and to the legislature for, you know, what you're being accused of, um, which 
again, he kind of launched into another victimization angle where he said, well, if you if you look in the press, I'm being hammered every day. So I think I'm. Being well, we've certainly done account. our part to hammer him every day. <laughs> look, the, the problem was uh, and Boggs p- pointed this out, that that he was in charge of the people, some of whom have already pleaded guilty in this bribery scheme in robbing the people of Ohio to give money to First Energy. And so she's saying, don't you have accountability for that? And he's trying to duck it. He also tried to make it sound like it was political. And the first questions for him right out of the shoot were, well, wait, wait, wait. The, the, the resolutions introduced to oust you are from Republicans, right? And he says, yes. And the prosecutor, the federal prosecutor who did the investigation and indicted you is a Republican, right? Yes. And the president at the time, the guy who controlled the Justice Department at the time, was a Republican, right? Yes. And, he goes, and yet you still say it's politics. Yeah. You know, I mean, look, the, the not problem- to mention not to mention one of the lawmakers who dimed on him was a Republican. Like we can add that in there, too. He he I, I was surprised at how adamantly. He professed his innocence, even saying, yeah, I know other people have pleaded guilty, but that doesn't mean anything. I mean, people have pleaded guilty in a 60 million dollar bribery scheme to get legislation passed that he negotiated. I mean, the the walls are crumbling around him. And finally, the last question directed to him was, "Okay, okay, okay, put all that aside. You did have one of your your co co defendants pay off your arrears on a mortgage. You did have your co-defendant spend $20,000 to pay off your credit card. And yes, you were transparent about it. You listed it as a gift. But do you really believe that that kind of gift is appropriate for the leader of this body? And of course, his lawyer wouldn't let him answer the question. Yeah. Uh, It's part of this kind of like, you know, uh, gee, shucks, I had no idea what, you know, I didn't know what was going on there. I'm just the leader of the caucus and, you know, kind of the central figure of this investigation. And I think that you're going to see quite a bit of this in just about every single political corruption case you have from here on out where you just deny, deny, deny and, you know, refuse to give up because what is the benefit of resigning anymore? You know, well having some sense of accountability there's in federal court the benefit of working at a deal is you spend a lot less time in an orange jumpsuit i mean he by going to the mat i mean he's going to learn the jimmy demora lesson Mm -hmm. that you're going to go away for a really long time maybe even the rest of your life uh it's a stupid thing to do when the case is so strong and look this case could not be more strong you know people might not remember but what First Energy was trying to do to get all this money from its ratepayers had been stopped at every juncture because it was so wrong. And then all of a sudden, Householder engineered the votes he needed to, to ra- and immediately ram this thing through. Everybody questioned it at the time. Like, why are we doing this? This is a bad idea. And then, of course, when the indictment came down, we all understood. They were all bought and paid for, which raises questions now as to why they're banning city-owned broadband. Is there somebody being bought and paid for new? What's going to happen next? It's, you know, Bob Cup immediately tried to stop any discussion on the next step, but it sounds like his members aren't, aren't waiting for him. Yeah, yeah, as is typical for a uh, you know for Bob Cup, I don't think he's very in very much control here. Uh, late, you know, last night, lawmakers from both sides of the aisle were meeting to discuss 
using some parliamentary rules to kind of force a vote on it today. So, you know, honestly, by the time you're listening to this, he very well may have been expelled from office. It, it, there's a there's a decent likelihood that they're going to vote on it today and uh, kind of get this done and over with. Because the other thing to think about is like this, you know, yeah, this is happening now and it's high profile, but it's been basically a year since he was arrested. It's been 11 months since he was arrested and, you know, been six months since Republicans said, hey, you know, this is when we're going to take a look at it and been, you know, even a couple of weeks since the resolution itself was introduced. So I, I think there's a pretty um, strong contingency of lawmakers. Obviously, they think they have a majority, the two thirds majority they need to expel him. Uh, but you've had a lot of Republicans who kind of behind the scenes have reportedly been, you know, basically gumming this up and saying, no, they don't want to vote householder out. They're still standing by him. Yeah. Bill Seitz, number one. They, I don't think he did himself any favors. I think the fact that almost immediately after this hearing, after Bob Cup tried to protect him once again, that they got together to say, look, we got to we got to use a procedure to get him out of here, showed that people were disgusted with his bombast. He did not come in with any humility. He did not come in no, with any acknowledgement that HB six was a terrible crime perpetrated on the residents of Ohio. Uh, and they are all responsible for it. They voted for it because of his advocacy. He was their leader and they're all in the jackpot. They all look like they're in the pocket of first energy. He did that to them. And instead of coming in and acknowledging it, his bombast and, you know, talking about his children and, you know, the way things are done where he's from. I, I think people were turned off. And look, at the, I don't know if you saw it at the very end. He almost made a threat where he said, you know, this is actually more dangerous for Democrats than for Republicans because yes. Republicans have the supermajority. And one of the, the House members immediately called him on it saying, you know, that that's just not appropriate to make this partisan. We're not talking about that. We're talking about yeah. your place in this body. Um, m making a, a threat is never a smart move when you're in that kind of a vulnerable position. Anyway, well, he, fascinating. It was a fascinating thing. I, I mean, I, I wish I could have seen every minute of it. Yeah, well, he was essentially arguing. I mean, if, if you take his argument at face value, what he's essentially saying is that, um, you know, lawmakers have imputed, to, you know, do as they please and serve in the legislature. There is no mechanism for doing it other than some kind of, you know, criminal uh, conviction. And mm. I, I mean, you know, it, the, mm. the whole threat against Democrats is them basically saying, well, we've got the supermajority and, you know, maybe, you know, hey, you know, Amelia Sykes or Mike Skindel or Kristen Boggs, you know, if, if we if we so wanted to, we could we could remove you for anything we want. And, and it's just weren't. not taking into account the kind of extraordinary circumstances that are going on here. Well, and they, and they weren't buying it and they were offended by it, which is, I think, the reason we're going to end up with a vote today. Got to move on. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. If you enjoy this podcast, can you do us a favor and fill out a quick survey? Many of you have sent us notes about how much you like the discussions and debates that we have on This Week in the CLE, and we are trying to reach others who might like it. The audience has grown steadily, and we're trying to grow it even bigger so that we can keep these episodes coming. To do that, we need to know a bit about how you found it, where you listened to it, and when. Please visit cleveland.com slash the CLE survey. It won't take but a minute or two. Jane Cahoon, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi join me, Chris Quinn, in thanking you for the time. 
One more time, the site for the survey is cleveland.com slash the CLE survey. What does Ohio Lieutenant Governor John Houston think of his fellow Republicans in the Ohio Senate trying to block cities from providing Internet to underserved communities? Seth Richardson, we had big stories about this that actually resonated. I heard it from a lot of people pointing out this venal move by Senate Republicans to enrich AT&T and Spectrum and the others by prohibiting cities from trying to provide access to people who need it. What does Houston say? Well, he's not a fan of the idea. Uh, obviously, DeWine and Houston, one of the things that they are trying to do as they kind of look to, you know, quote unquote, rebuild the state coming out of the coronavirus pandemic is to increase uh, broadband speeds to everyone across the state that that goes from, you know, big municipalities like Cleveland all the way down to, you know, much more rural areas. And I, I think he sees that, you know, th- like this is just kind of a bridge too far. He thinks it's a bridge too far to basically give these big telecom companies this monopoly over something that, you know, maybe it's not technically a utility by uh, by like federal law or anything, but for all intents and purposes is a utility because look at how much it was needed during the pandemic, uh, you know, for work and learning from home. So, you know, Husted was um, optimistic that it would be pulled out by the house. It was a Senate passed budget and they still have to go to conference committee, but he is expecting that uh, that provision as well as the $190 uh, million that was allocated for broadband expansion from the state, um, you know, would be put back in. And I'm sorry that the broadband ban would be taken out and the 190 million would be put back in. Yeah, I, the, the outrage was so thick. We are hearing almost immediately this is going to come out that the Senate Republicans who got in bed with the broadband providers who have basically redlined poor areas, as in Cleveland, um, are, are going to have to run away from it. I still don't know why they got in bed with these these broadband providers. I, you know, people I suggested I no is there corruption going on here? And I heard from some people saying, well, you know, it might not be corruption. There could be some reasons like, yeah, give me a good reason. That's not that they're getting money in their pockets. Cause this was just a, a very sleazy thing that they did. So we'll have to see if Houston's right. It sounds like in reconciliation, that stuff will go away. If it doesn't, I suspect the wine would do a line item veto. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What did Ohio health professionals say about a proposed anti-vaccine bill in the Ohio legislature when they finally got the chance to speak about it? Seth Richardson, and we will have Laura participate in this podcast <laughs> at some point this morning. <laughs> Seth Richardson, the uh, they had three hearings previously to let kind of nut job uh, conspiracy theorists hold sway. I mean, everybody knows about the lady that said that if you or the doctor that said if you uh get the vaccine, it makes you into a magnet. Um, Finally, responsible medical professionals could speak up. What did they say? I I think everybody probably has an idea of what they said, right? That, um, you know, this bill uh, can really put the public at danger. And there's a particular emphasis on sick children it could put in danger. You had doctors from, uh, you know, several children's hospitals around the state who pointed out that if employers are not able to, you know, ask or find out about vaccination status of, uh, you know, their employees, there are immunocompromised kids who, you know, maybe somebody isn't vaccinated for, you know, 
uh, it, it pick a disease, right? And since they're immunocompromised, if you don't know if a nurse is possibly carrying that somehow, that could really put those kids in danger. And it's, you know, it's not just kids, it's any sick patients across the state, not to mention the threats to, you know, public health of uh, this kind of, you know, wannabe laissez-faire attitude towards it. Um, there, there certainly seem to be some just kind of exasperation by these medical professionals having to go up against, uh, you know, really a lot of, frankly, kooks who uh, you know, don't seem to really know what they're talking about when it comes to public health. The disappointment here, of course, is that the Ohio legislative committees had three hearings filled with kooks before they brought in responsible people to try and put the brakes on this thing. It sounds like this won't pass and that this won't, it may not even get a vote, but it, but it is extraordinary that the way the legislature has shoved all sorts of big time legislative stuff into the budget without having a single hearing. And yet we had three hearings of crazy yeah. testimony about anti-vax nonsense. So it's good. I, I, there's going to be even another hearing, right? Where the opponents get to talk again because so many of them wanted yeah. to be heard. Yeah. Well, and you know, to your point, you know, Scott lips, the chairman of the house health committee was kind of, uh, admonishing everybody for, uh, you know, making it about the, you know, the, the woman who said it magnetizes you or whatever and stuff like that and like oh he they're using this to attack the bill and da, da, da. it's like well when that's who the bill's for that's <laughs> what you have to take into account is that this is a bill that is being supported by a high profile woman who says that you know this vaccine that vaccines allow you know they magnetize people and communicate with 4g technology that is just wild like yes you have to take that in. and this is laura johnston i appreciated the children's you know the pediatricians being there because these kids don't have a choice they can't be vaccinated if they're under 12 years old so i'm glad somebody's speaking up for them yeah it's a, that's a shameful thing that he did to to try and say you're trying to defeat the bill with the the wacko testimony that's that's where from proponents bill, from proponents of that's the, where the bill came from the bill yeah. came from wacko conspiracy theorists that don't want to have vaccines which have saved uncountable lives and shame on him for not having an opponent's hearing contemporaneously with the proponent's hearing i it I, i'm not even sure he was going to have an opponent's hearing until the magnet lady caught national attention and he was kind of shamed into it so We'll have to see where it goes. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is the novel idea that Akron Mayor Dan Horrigan proposed for, to Senator Sherrod Brown's committee for using infrastructure spending to boost neighborhoods? Seth Richardson, I'd not heard this proposed by another mayor. Uh, uh, you got to give credit to the Akron Mayor Dan Horrigan for coming up with something unusual. Yeah, it was intriguing because normally when you think about infrastructure, it's, you know, roads, bri roads bridges, those kinds of things. Um, and he was talking about the, uh, you know, the housing problems in his district. And again, when you talk about infrastructure and housing, you, you know, it's normally a talk about public housing, right? Whether it be, um, you know, housing projects of some kind or, you know, uh, uh, low income housing. But he pointed out that the, the, the issue with housing in his district isn't necessarily some kind of gentrification or, um, you know, people being priced out or, you know, people moving away. It's actually that uh, real estate prices are low 
in Akron. And it prevents people from getting any kind of loans to, uh, you, you know, either build on the property or to uh, renovate and update a property to make it kind of nicer. So he kind of suggested that, hey, it might be a good idea to either create a new project or, you know, uh, alter existing programs to sort of give these kind of uh, access to capital to, you know, medium and kind of low income homeowners who maybe they can afford this property, but, you know, what they can do after they buy that property is really limited. The, the idea of putting infrastructure money into houses is interesting. He did point out that all the other infrastructure we talk about, sewer and water and broadband, all connect to houses. So yeah. they're ultimately recipients of it. So it's uh, it's an interesting one. Did Sherrod Brown give it much thought? Yeah, it seemed like he did. He was talking about, uh, you know, back in the, uh, the kind of the New Deal day, there were, you know, people electrified the country and ran, uh, you know, systems to houses. And that's really the, the kind of basis for, you know, uh, uh, utilities that we have today, right? Back in the day, you didn't necessarily have power that ran to every house or phone lines that ran to every house or running water or sewage even that ran to every house. And um, so he, he seems to be intrigued by the plan. Laura Johnston, you're pretty familiar with Akron. Is there something special about the housing there that puts it in need of, of government assistance? I don't think there's anything specifically special about the housing in Akron. I actually think they have a good stock of, you know, middle-class homes in the West Akron area and Fairlawn Heights where people really maintain it. But I think Horrigan is thinking creatively, which is something we haven't seen a ton of with the stimulus money. We keep seeing, you know, they're, they're doing some pretty basic projects and we want to see people think bigger. And this is a new idea. And I think it's a great one. Like if we can pay people a hundred bucks to go get vaccinated, then maybe we can take some stimulus money and put it into aging homes so that people want to stay in them and stay in the cities so that we don't have everybody just moving out and taking up more farm fields and building new houses out there. I think it's a really creative idea that deserves more discussion. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why did a respected member of Cleveland's police commission resign? And what does that resignation mean for other members? Laura Johnston, some of the uh, others on the commission were sad to see her go. Yeah, this is pretty interesting. The Aisha Hardaway spoke about police in America after the Derek Chauvin verdict um, in the George Floyd murder. And she basically was forced to resign on Monday after officials raised concerns about those comments way back in April. Her message, and it was to WCPN, the um, local NPR affiliate, she focused on the violence in policing, the need for systemic police reforms. But she said she was speaking as a professor and a researcher at Case Western Reserve's University School of Law, not as a member of the monitoring team. That didn't really seem to matter um, to, to some justice officials and folks from the city who said they were concerned that Hardaway wouldn't be objective. So she, she wrote a letter of resignation. She did not sound apologetic at all. I'm going to quote from it. She said, I recognize that it is a tall order for some to accept the reality that violence exists in American policing and that systemic change is needed in order to address the longstanding and disproportionate impact that excessive use of force by police has on black people. So, I mean, those are pretty fiery words. I, I don't get it, though. I the, the police commission is supposed to be a cross-section of 
of Cleveland. And so you would expect you'd have some people that feel strongly that that police go too far with violence. And you would expect that you'd have some more law and order types there and that they they would all agree, as you do when you're on a jury, to discuss these things with an open mind, to to not bring biases into the conversation. But you want those backgrounds. I, I just I don't understand why having an opinion on a trend knocks you out. It's almost like we don't want to have a real debate because we're going to get people that come in and say, I don't have any opinions on any of this. Is that really where we're going to be in the best position is people who don't care enough to form an opinion? Yeah. To me, it, it sounded like she was, I mean, she's a, in, the, in the law school at case. She sounds like a very reasonable, reasoned person. And Lewis Katz, who's the co-chairman of the police uh, community police commission said that this was a huge loss. She was the local person with expertise on constitutional policing and contributed hugely to what has been accomplished. So the whole idea that she's getting kicked off because she said something a lot of people think about police in America after, you know, a, a murder trial, it, it seems really unfair. I think I'm right about this. Isn't one of the standing seats on this commission, the police union chief? I do not know the answer to that. I'm pretty but... sure it is. And the police union chief makes no mystery <laughs> of <laughs> what they, they think about this. So wh- how can you have that be a member of the commission and not somebody uh, that has the opposite opinion? It sounds like this is a major Justice Department screw up and they, they ought to fix it by bringing her back and rejecting her resignation. Uh, very disappointing to hear how this went down. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is a proposal by the Cleveland Metro Parks to widen a sidewalk so controversial that it might not happen? Lord Johnson, this one baffles me. A sidewalk widening project becomes a huge neighborhood dispute. Yeah, and I'm, I think I'm going to have to blame NIMBYism again. And somebody actually asked me last week what NIMBY means. So in case you're not up on acronyms, it's not in my backyard. And it's this idea that you don't want something happening literally in your backyard. You think it's going to affect your property values, your family. And, and it, it's very kind of short-sighted. So someone likened the idea of the sidewalk bike path to being assaulted by a gang, which had happened in the past. And you're just like, wait, what? I mean, the whole idea seems like a pretty good one. The Metro Parks want to create a better connection for bicyclists and pedestrians between Edgewater Park in Cleveland and Rocky River Reservation, which is in between Rocky River and Lakewood. This would increase increase access to Lake Erie, which everyone knows I am always in favor of. And the idea is to widen the sidewalk from three to six feet, which is its current, to eight to 10 feet. There's no issue of property rights. The entire extension is within the right of way. And there are a lot of perks. Like the Metro Park said that they would um, actually plow the sidewalks in winter. They would exercise care around tree roots. They would replace it if it gets busted because sidewalks can be expensive to upkeep if you're a homeowner and they have the money to pay for it. But homeowners basically say, we don't necessarily want that traffic. They're worried about the trees, liability, but backing into a cyclist. Honestly, it seems like they're reaching. Yeah, they just don't want people in their neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> they don't. They don't want to make it easy to connect between Edgewater and Rocky River. Yeah, and it's that's. I think nimbyism is the very definition of what's happening here. It'll be interesting to see how Metro Parks navigates it. Metro Parks has made a lot of really good decisions about how to provide recreation throughout Northeast Ohio. It's one of the most respected 
institutions we have. And I wonder if they will be denied in serving the greater good by a handful of people that are just trying to preserve what they got. Can I add one more thing here? So this bike route on Lake Avenue is called for in the county's Greenway plan, which was completed in 2019. So it's always been planned to increase access here. And in Lake Road and Lakewood, they actually added bike lanes on either side of Lake Road when they redid it. They can't do that in the Cleveland section. There's just not enough room in the road. But honestly, as a cyclist and a parent of smaller kids, I don't like bike lanes because there's cars parked on the other side. And to me, that's it's not safe. So if you want to bike between it, I think a bike path is the way to go. Well, what, okay. why do they think that the Seth property value? I'm sorry. Yeah, this is Seth. Why, why do they think that the property values are going to be so harshly affected by this? Because adding recreation to an area tends to increase property value. Right. And that's what Chris Ronain said. Um, the I, I forget. He's like on the planning commission, right? He's the director of university circle, but he's saying this shows that people want to move here. They want to live near um, recreation and transportation. But I think they're, I mean, I hate to put thoughts in these people's heads, but the idea is maybe you'll have undesirable people using the trail and then you'd have, you know, that crime. I don't know. Hmm. Again, okay. I think it's a reach. You are listening to this week in the CLE. Did a Cuyahoga County judge take a rare step to dismiss a murder case because of lacking evidence? And what was the reaction to the decision? Lord Johnston, we got to do this one quickly. Okay, so Tevin Biles Thomas, who was charged with murder, voluntary manslaughter, and felonious assault, his case was dismissed yesterday. The judge decided there wasn't enough evidence to even send the case to a jury. And this was a 2018 New Year's Eve party where there was a shooting. Well, the mother of one of the three men who died ended up rushing Biles Thomas after the decision. She ran across the courtroom. A sheriff's deputy tackled her, escorted her to the back of the courtroom, but there were no charges filed against her. They were, the, this is one where it really is on the prosecution. They took a case to trial that was not there. Um, they they could have waited until they built a better case that there was no evidence. So the judge took the incredibly unusual step of not even allowing it to go to the jury, of just saying, there's no evidence here that could lead to a conviction. I've got to dismiss this mm-hmm. uh, because it's Rule 29. You can't try him again. The, the jury was impaneled. Uh, so even if they built a case now that and he did do it, he says he did not, uh, they can't try him. It was it was really kind of irresponsible for the prosecution and it to do was it. Rushed. I mean, they couldn't even get a hold of the one witness they had in the first trial. So that the, their best witness said she was seventy five percent sure. Like what? Yeah, it's a it's really one where they shouldn't have brought the case. And I feel for the family of the victims because they know that they may never get justice. Mm-hmm. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Well, that'll do it. Some good discussions today. Thank you, Seth Richardson. Thank you, Laura Johnston. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back tomorrow. 